Well, thank you for joining us, uh, both in the room and those joining online as well. Welcome you and just hope that this time we spend together is such an encouragement to your faith and, and just a reminder of all that God has done. We're going to actually finish our time together with communion. And so if you're watching remotely and joining us there, we invite you to grab a cracker and juice ready for that time at the end of our service. Uh, this weekend I was able to attend, I use the word loosely, attend my first Wesleyan conference on Zoom, but at least I was there and so that was really encouraging to, to, to be able to do that. And I'm excited about all that God is doing in our wider district and of course here in our local church and in the moments that we'll share together right now. The last few weeks we've been looking at the greatest return and we're saying we're excited by the future hope that we have in Christ and the reason we're excited is because there's this sense in our spirit that the world isn't living in the design that it was intended for by God. We're not in the flow, we're not in the groove, we're out of sync with our Creator and yet the day comes and it's already started when Jesus first entered the world but when he returns he'll complete the work he started as king then, not baby, and he'll rule and reign over his people. And so our role in the meantime is not only to personally get on board but bring as many people as we possibly can into that line of thinking as well. And I love how the scripture, um, somebody has said of the scripture, the big idea of the Bible is God wants his family back, that we can boil the 1,200 pages or so of Bible, which is full of complexity and deep theology and prophecy and all sorts of things. But if you're struggling with all that, then hear this simple thought, God wants his family back. And we're invited into that space now and we bring as many people as we can along that journey so that when Christ does return, we, we enter into that family. We enter into the marriage supper of the Lamb, that mother of all parties that's going to be there at that time as all things come to their renewal in Christ. In the meantime, we live in a tension between light and darkness. And we feel that tension and it's real. And it's real in your own personal struggles in your life. And it's real in our culture. And this brings me to the big thought that's puzzling in our Bible reading that we're going to pick up this weekend. How much power does Satan have? That's what we pick up in verse 18 of 1 Thessalonians 2. There's this, there's this little phrase there where, where Paul writes, Satan prevented me. He blocked me from coming to you. I haven't physically been able to get back to you and visit your church because of the evil one. Now that's perplexing. I don't know how that works in your mind because many of you have probably been raised to think, and rightly so, that God is sovereign that God is all-powerful, that God is more mighty than the evil one. So how do we then reconcile this idea of Satan being able to block what God wants to do? This has been your question at times, I'm sure of it. When you're trying to do good and on a fairly regular basis as you go about an endeavour that seems to have good intentions, why is that opposition so real within that? And we ask ourselves, if I'm on the side of team light, if I'm trying to live out God's way, then why is this darkness so prevalent in this journey at this time? Paul not only admits to that, he writes it down as a public record 
for us. And it must be accurate because it got its way into our scriptures. So God put his stamp of approval on this idea that Satan, yes, was the one who blocked Paul's pathway here. This well-intentioned plan that Paul had to go back and encourage this church. Confusing, but real. So let's jump in and read about it. 1 Thessalonians 2, and picking it up at verse 14, it says this, And then, dear brothers and sisters, you suffered persecution from your own countrymen. In this way, you imitated the believers in God's churches in Judea, who, because of their belief in Christ Jesus, suffered from their own people, the Jews. For some of the Jews killed the prophets, and some even killed the Lord Jesus. And now they have persecuted us too. They fail to please God and work against all humanity as they try and keep us from preaching the good news of salvation to the Gentiles. By doing this, they continue to pile up their sins, but the anger of God has caught up with them at last. Dear brothers and sisters, after we were separated from you for a while, though our hearts never left you, we tried very hard to come back because of our intense longing to see you again. This is our key verse. We wanted very much to come to you. And I, Paul, he testifies this. Again and again, I've tried to get back there. But notice this. Satan prevented it from happening. After all, what gives us hope and joy and what will be our proud reward and crown as we stand before our Lord Jesus when he returns? It is you. You are our pride and joy. And may the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his holy word. Now there's several ways we can interpret the activity of Satan in the world today. And I just wanna spend a few moments exploring some of the different ways that people think about satanic influence in the world. First of all, there's the ignorant approach. Some people's best idea when it comes to encountering the dark side is just don't. Don't encounter the dark side. Pretend it's not there. Play dumb. Put it out of your mind. It's too negative to worry about what the devil's doing. Stay on the positive side of the ledger and focus only on what God is doing. And as you do that, the negative kind of will fade away. Well, it almost sounds too good to be true. And I hate to say it, it is too good to be true. This doesn't happen. Satan doesn't just run away just because he gets ignored. In fact, if anything, it just gives him free range. If I'm never willing to talk about something, that something usually has control in my life. I'm not free of whatever that thing is just by ignoring it. I'm actually just giving it power over me. So this is the ideal scenario for the enemy, actually. Just come and go as you will and be undetected. And there's a song way back in the 70s written by a Jesus freak by the name of Keith Green, and he's commenting on how Satan loves to operate undetected. And it's a satanic celebration as such, this song. It says this, I'm gaining power by the hour. They're falling by the score. You know, it's getting simple now because no one believes in me anymore. I used to have to sneak around, but now they just open their doors. You know, no one's watching for my tricks because no one believes in me anymore. This is the ignorance approach. Now, certainly it's possible to go to the other extreme and get infatuated with the dark side. 
we can get to the point where people are looking for demons under every tree, and that's neither healthy. The Bible implores us to keep our eyes on Jesus. We're not supposed to give our highest attention to the devil and all that he's doing in the world, but neither should we just walk out into the battlefield called life and pretend there's no threat. We'll go down quick smart. We'll be easy pickings. Admitting Satan's reality doesn't encourage his activity, actually positions us to combat his activity. Ignoring them just gives it free play. Apparently Paul has no trouble identifying the work of the enemy here. Very clearly in verse 18, he says, Satan is the one behind my delay, church. Not me. It's not my unwillingness to come. I've tried again and again. And it's not even God that has delayed me. He could have spiritualised it and said, well, the will of the Lord right now is that I don't come this year. But he didn't say that. He says the evil one pre prevented it. How did Satan manage that? Probably via humans. That's what verse 15 indicates. It was people persecuting Paul and trying to block his path. Did he get death threats? Maybe. Was it something more subtle than that? Possibly. We know that Satan rarely shows up with pitchforks. He usually goes through people, just in the ordinary situations of life. He shows up to oppose everything that God wants to do via the average Joe Blow in the street. It's far more normal than what you'll see in the movies. Satan just sits in the background, frustrating the work of God from progressing in a way they otherwise would if he wasn't there. But don't think lights and sirens. Satan is very subtle and invisible and quiet, and yet powerful in his resistance to all that is godly. It can be hard to spot at times. Some folks do more than acknowledge Satan's influence, though, which brings me to the second approach. They go for an all-out assault, and they take a triumphant approach to the idea of having a spiritual enemy. Many a person in church full of faith exclaims, there's only one way to deal with the enemy. And we apply the victory of Jesus Christ. And so with hands in the air and voice sung out loud, they say the enemy's been defeated and death couldn't hold him down. That's Jesus. We're going to lift our voice in victory. And so on the song goes. Those with this approach are driven by the conquest of Jesus through his death, burial and resurrection. The enemy is stripped bare and now he has nothing on the life of the Christ follower. His power is stripped back to nothing. He's all bark and no bite. He is powerless unless the Jesus follower actually hands over power to him. And yes, we should even go after satanic influence. If he turns up in our neighbourhood, we should chase him and hunt him down and make him pay so that he'll never show up again. He's sorry he ever tried. This is a triumphant approach. It emphasises our strength in the spiritual battle. When I was young in faith, I was heavily influenced by these views. Heavily influenced. I felt that spiritual warfare, that is finding where the enemy's working, where the dark side's kind of, you know, under the carpet, I'd find our way in there. And I thought it was my role to get in there and clear it out of our community. It was the thing to do. And what I'm about to admit to is going to sound really, really weird. I, I know all these years on looking back, it, it's going to sound pretty out there. But here's how we used to 
fill in a Saturday night. We, me and my mates, we thought we were Ghostbusters. <laughs> we went after wickedness with all guns blazing. And uh, there is these periods we found out that satanic um, influences and those that worship Satan, Satanists, they, they gather together on periods around full moons. And we found out where they were meeting and the local Ghostbusters, that is me and my mates, turned up to go to work on their influence. And there was about me and seven others, I think there was about eight of us all together. We were ready to rumble. These people would be sorry that they ever, you know, so we're working from the, for the wrong side of the ledger. So we would search our opportunities to wield our God-given authority and bring down the dark side, Team Evil. Well, it sounds funny now, but it wasn't a laughing matter back then, I can tell you. I, I can't go into the fullness of the story and neither would it be beneficial to do so, but we got hurt. We paid dearly for that. We, we came under brutal attack. We had no idea what we were meddling with, me and my other young guns, and it's no exaggeration to say the hits we, we received through that process ran deep. There was spiritual, emotional and mental injuries as a result of getting out there and doing that in a haphazard way. In the following weeks and months, terrible, terrible, terrible things went down. Every single one of us had a major life crisis. One of the guys tried committing suicide. He was unsuccessful, but very, very close to. Another guy had a marriage breakdown. Another guy became drug addicted through that time. And the stories went on and on and on. We meant well, but we were young and we were unprepared for the fight that we got ourselves into. We stirred up the hornet's nest and we were completely unprepared for what was going to come. If we didn't believe in satanic influence before that time, we certainly did after that time. Such was the level of wounds received through that experience, some never recovered in terms of their Christian faith. And the Bible gives you a similar story like that in Acts 19 where the seven sons of Sceva, and I only said the seven scones, the seven sons, <laughs> of Sceva, they might have gone with scones, but they didn't help. These Ghostbusters, like us, went out to infiltrate into enemy lines and they came out with all guns blazing. They would teach Satan a lesson, so they thought, but they went home with their tail between their legs. They found that the enemy returned fire for fire, which he surely does. And Satan does not give up any ground without a fight. He'll come back hard every single time. In retelling all of that experience, so I'm not trying to spook you. I'm not trying to increase anybody's fears. It's not my intention at all. I am trying to raise awareness. I am trying to ask you to take this very, very serious. When you combat demonic force, it's not a walk in the park. Satan is a formidable and relentless opponent. And he keeps coming back to harass and do everything possible to block God working in us and through us. And we do well to stay wary of him. The Bible says, be vigilant. He comes like a roaring lion. And we are aware of his ploys to divide and conquer and stir up strife and create discouragement. That's what he's about. And he'll tell lies to do it. We recognise the devil is still today, post-resurrection, 
a dangerous opponent. And we're careful not to adopt an over-realised eschatology, which means we're in heaven now and acting as though there isn't a battle still raging. There is. There is. And it's folly just for us to say, if I have enough faith, I'll win. Because the logic doesn't hold up here in 1 Thessalonians 2. Paul is the closest thing you'll ever find to a gold-class theologian. And he's the one writing this. Satan prevented me. He wrote half of the New Testament and he is a man of faith and he has a man who's got his God theology sorted out. And yet this post-resurrection of Jesus is where this writing is being said. He's still able to say, on this occasion, I can't get past Satan. He's blocked me. On this occasion, he's been too much for me. So this should serve us well to not be overconfident and make it sound like all of this spiritual warfare stuff is a done deal. The danger of the triumphant approach is we overstay our position. Yet Jude warns that even Michael, this is the second last book of the Bible I'm quoting from, even Michael, the mightiest of angels, did not dare accuse the devil, but simply said, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. What's that mean? even the most potent force in God's army showed respect for the enemy. He didn't stir up trouble just for the sake of it, just to see if he gets a rise. No, 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 he didn't dare. He knew what a dangerous proposition the enemy was and still is. So what is our approach then? If it's not arrogance and not ignorance, how should we think about the enemy and all that he wants to do in the world right now and watch how we, we should think about responding to him as a follower of Jesus. I think the best way for us to think about this is as a wrestler. A wrestler. In the Ephesian church, Paul writes about this in chapter 6. He says, you're in a spiritual battle and you're wrestling. You're wrestling against these evil forces and you're in active combat and you should think about that active combat as a wrestle, a wrestle. This wrestle is not against flesh and blood, Paul would write. In other words, it's not people. People are just puppets that the enemy uses for his purposes. The source is Satan. He is the one behind the wrestle. He is the one ultimately doing the attacking when it comes to people who are trying to live right before God. So that unreasonable boss who's just turned extra crazy lately, yes, there could be an evil influence underneath that. That colleague who's stirring up false accusations repeatedly against you over and over and over again, yes, it could be fueled by the dark side. That teammate who ignores you and doesn't acknowledge your presence in the room just because you have Christian faith. Yes, that hatred could be being stirred up as the enemy works through these people. So what do we do? We don't take our frustrations out on them. We take our intensity to God in prayer. We go to the prayer closet and we address God there about the hurts and the frustrations and the struggles that we have. Because our wrestle, our wrestle, keyword, our wrestle is not with them. The real wrestle is with the spiritual forces that are working through them. Now we know in the 
Greek-Roman world, wrestling was common and the first readers would be able to imagine exactly what this means. They probably participated in the sport themselves, certainly regularly see the sport. It's a little harder for us, it's pretty rare in our country, this whole idea of wrestling. But there's good news here and you don't have to dig hard to find it when it comes to you being in a wrestle. And here's the really good news that I want to ring in your ears when we finish this time together. A wrestler can lose a round and still win the fight. A wrestler can lose a round but still win the battle in the end. And I think this is what God wants us to hear here through this passage. This is the encouragement for all of us who are engaged in some kind of battle today. A battle in your marriage, a battle in your own personal struggle against sin, a battle in your workplace. Whatever the battle is that you're facing right now, you can drop around but still win the fight because you're in a wrestle and you have a formidable opponent. But hold fast to Christ and you can win the fight. You can win the fight. We do well to accept that we'll lose some rounds along the way. That's just the nature of this battle. Our opponent is not going to give up and he's crafty and he'll continue to come up and try and find cracks in our armour. And we will lose some rounds along the way. You know how I know that about you? Because Paul's a far better advanced Christian than most of us are. And he lost the rounds. He says, Satan got me here. I can't get past him. So if he drops around, there's every chance I'm going to drop some and there's every chance you're going to drop some. But the encouragement is dropping around doesn't mean you lose the fight, yeah? You don't lose the fight. Paul didn't lose the fight. In fact, in his final letter, his sign-off, Now we believe Thessalonians is his earliest New Testament letter in terms of chronological writings. This is his first letter to a church. In his final letter to young leader Timothy. At the end of his life, he writes this, 2 Timothy 4, you should keep a clear mind in every situation, Timothy. Don't be afraid of suffering for the Lord. Work at telling others the good news and fully carry out the ministry that God has given you. As for me, that's Paul, my life has already been poured out as an offering to God. The time of my death is near. Paul, Paul knew he's in his final days. But look what he says. I have fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've remained faithful. He won. He won the battle. And now the prize awaits me, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on the day of his return. And the prize is not just for me, but for all who eagerly look forward to his appearing. You're in the midst of a battle, and so am I. And it's real. The enemy, he, he hits to hurt and kill if he can get away with it. Following Jesus is not for the faint-hearted. Whoever said it was has never tried it. When you try it, you realise just what a wrestle it really is. Every step seems to be opposed, doesn't it? You take a hit with every step of progress. And yet Paul is able to say, hey, Despite this setback that I'm telling you about here in 1 Thessalonians, in, in, in my final word to Timothy, he says, hey, I won the battle. I won the battle because I kept my eyes on Christ. I want to talk to you about the replay advantage. God sees our lives 
from beginning to end. We, we don't have that advantage there. Yeah? We're in the midst of a battle. We're struggling with something right now and we wonder, are we going to make it? Are we going to even get to tomorrow? The replay advantage. Back in the olden days, for old people like me, when we were not going to be home and there was an important sporting event being played, like your favourite football team, which would be me, Hawthorne, and you had a wedding on or something of the sort, what you had to do back in the olden days, you had to actually set up the video player recorder and, and you know, have the right time there and you had to do all this work in advance and set it up so that you could, you could record it and then you could replay it when you got home later that night or whatever it might be. Now, I don't even own a video or DVD player anymore. These are kind of ancient artefacts now. But back in the day, this is what we used to do. We used to record a thing and then we could replay. We could watch it back later. What used to often happen, which would kind of spoil it, would someone at the wedding, knowing my team, would come up and say, oh, wow, great win by your team today. And I'd be like, oh, you just spoiled it. I was going to watch the replay. I deliberately didn't check the results because I wanted to watch it as though it was live, right? You didn't want someone to spoil the result for you in the meantime before you got there. And it kind of took all the sting out of watching it that night when you already knew the result, particularly if your side had lost, you didn't even bother watching. You know, it's so different watching the game when you know the result. And we, we just need a little bit more of God's perspective here, I think, to cope with some of the bumps called life. Because God sits there at the end and goes, oh, I already know how this is going to play out. I already know that, yes, you've, you've dropped around there, but, but I know you'll win. I know you'll win the battle. I, I, I've stamped you with my name upon you. I've given you my Holy Spirit. And yes, you'll overcome. You'll get there. You'll win the battle. You'll drop around along the way here and there. Yes, Satan will, will get you around here and there. He'll prevent this from happening. That, that could have been a good thing. But never fear in the end. You're mine and you're going to get through. I will carry you through to the end. You know, when I'd re-watch my team, or watch for the first time, but I'm on the replay now, and somebody's whispered, you know, at the wedding, for example, hey, great win by your team today. You know, it didn't matter then. We could have been getting hammered at quarter time. We could have been eight goals down. We could have still been down at half time. We could have been still down at three quarter time. But I had this confidence I hadn't, didn't have anxiety. I wasn't kind of riding every bump because I knew. I knew the result. I knew the result. I love what Billy Graham says. I've read the last page of the Bible. It's going to turn out all right. I've read the last page. It's going to turn out all right. You know, God's also writing a book about our lives. And the last page in God's foreknowledge is already written and he says, you're going to win because I've stamped you with my name. So can I encourage you with that tonight? The Bible says, it's now all glory to God who is able to keep you from falling away 
and will bring you with great joy into his glorious presence without a single fault. Blameless. Can you imagine that? All glory to him, all alone is God, our Saviour, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Glory, majesty, power and authority are his before all time, in the present and beyond all time. As the music team come, and we're going to move into communion now, I want to just remind you of this amazing, amazing position that is available to us in Jesus. The Bible says it like this, there's no condemnation for those in Christ. And you say, oh, but John, you, you don't know where my life is at. I'm really, I'm really, really, really at the end of the rope. Perfect. The end of the rope is God's space. The end of the rope is God's space. God's been waiting for us to get there for a long, long time where we'd stop depending on our strength and start fully depending on his so would you have your cracker and drink available and I invite you to stand. We're going to partake in communion in just a moment.